Topa, I don't know much about Topa. Well, you're about to learn about it. I'm yeah. trying to read this little like info sheet here. You want to chat about it first? No, because just the explaining of it, like whatever you're about to say in the chat, like just record it. In the, I'm always the stupid like, one in the, okay. in the podcast anyway, so the podcast should just be like Sarah learns about things. <laughs> Sarah. The Sarah, new thing Sarah learns today. Sarah tends to sound like she's educated about things. This <laughs> learns the entire time. <laughs> You're listening to the DC Real Estate Podcast, the podcast where we focus exclusively on all things local to the DMV area. Local investors, local knowledge, local experts. Our journey starts now. Welcome to this week's episode of the DC Real Estate Podcast. My name is Russell Brazil, and I am an associate real estate broker with Arla at Properties. And I'm Sarah Frank, licensed realtor in DC and Maryland, also on the District Invest team with Russell. And today we have our friend Peter here. He's going to talk to us about Topa. Peter, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me, first off. Uh, my name is Peter Parenti. I'm a licensed settlement officer in DC, Maryland, and Virginia. We do real estate closings, and I've been doing real estate closings and uh, business development for title companies in DC for the last over 10 years now. Too long to count. Dang. I know. Just 10 years. Just 10 years. I a know. Young, a swift decade. Yeah. A swift decade. So you guys have been in it for about the same time. Yeah, I've been in full-time sales nine or 10 years, eight or nine, 10 years. I don't years. know why I always want to tell people Russell's been in it for like 50 years. Well, I've been licensed <laughs> since 2003, so. So 50 years. Yeah. Cool. Okay. I've been 2013, so. Okay. But yeah. But I, I, yeah. I wasn't selling then. I was just flipping for. Okay. From so, like so you got the license just to do your own deals? Yeah. Okay. And then you went full-time 10 years ago? 10 years, roughly 10 years ago. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. Got it. I think Peter's a lot younger than me, though. Or at least he looks younger. I couldn't even tell so. Yeah. <laughs> Probably, yes. I don't know. <laughs> so tell us what, what title company you're at, Peter. Uh, so I'm with Titan Title. We mainly focus on business development. Uh, I focus on business development in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. And we serve all three, out all the way up to Baltimore and in between and... Peter's that guy, like, you know, in Harry Potter, when Hermione has the time turner so she can go to all her classes. I think Peter has one because he's at everything all the time. If there's a realtor there, it. It, opening of an envelope, I'll be there. I go to a lot of <laughs> events and I see Peter. Peter's at everywhere. all of them. Yeah. And then some. And then the event, you're like, oh, maybe I'm not going to go to that one. Peter posts a story from there. He's everywhere. So, so tell, tell us what impressive. business development is, because to me, it just sounds like you go to a lot of parties. <laughs> I wish that that's all it was. Yeah. Uh, so what it entails essentially is the more I put myself out there, the more I can learn and become a resource for the agents that I work with. So the more I can help agents that I work with grow their own business, the more I hope to in turn grow my own and just grow Titan's footprint in the market. Right. So the more we can become that resource for agents, I want to be the go to resource. And so the more I can be at and the more FaceTime I get with agents, the more I can learn and see what what's happening in the industry and the business. So tell us some of the resources that you're trying to uh, give to agents as value adds to their businesses. Yeah, of course. So there's a lot of information in the land records that's all public and free information that real estate agents can be using to actually grow their business and focus in their marketing. So let's say you want to grow your business and your footprint in a in a subdivision in a certain area. We can take what's in the land records like the fact that an owner has a VA loan or the fact that they have an FHA mortgage, we can look at that information and you can now tailor your marketing or let's say you have a cold caller 
that cold call becomes a little less intimidating when you know background information about the owner already. So it makes you even more of an expert, right? So that's just one way that I help agents. But And that's something you guys can do. Like if an agent comes to you and says, I want to you know, do that in, in Terry Brook Knowles or whatever, you help them do that like end to end or you just point them in the right direction? Absolutely. So what I do mainly is give them the information on the owners. And then given that I've worked with across many brokerages, I kind of know what the marketing departments are like, so I can point them in the right direction to actually execute the plan. So we kind of go from there, but I give them the land record information. Yeah. I'm always actually kind of dumbfounded at how many agents don't know how to use the land records. Um, Even the public search feature in your MLS is uh, a huge, you know? (laughs) Literally like search public records, type in name or address immense amounts of information comes up and people have people have never searched beyond the residential section. Exactly. Even just targeting owners who've owned for 25 plus years, those are great people to put information in front of, right? So, and that's all free in your in your MLS. Do you just use the MLS and land records to do that or are you using like any services like PropStream or anything? I love PropStream. I think it's a great service. I've used TitleFlex in the past uh, and I actually revert to MLS Bright as much as I can for their public search feature because I it's getting better and I'm sure they're sick of hearing from me to add different search features to that to that uh, page. Well, you know, it's funny. Whenever I have a complaint about Bright MLS, I go to our broker, Jason Sherman, because he's on the he's, a, he's on the board of Bright. Um, I think he's the treasurer this year. And I always get the same answer when I'm making a complaint. It's always, I wasn't on that subcommittee. <laughs> uh. <laughs> well, but you said, because you have lots of licenses in many areas. Like you said, Bright's one of the best ones for MLS. Yeah, Bright is the best MLS that I've used. Um, okay. The worst is probably MLS PIN, Boston's uh, MLS system. It's... Uh, completely atrocious oh god so it's just like the robustness or like the interface the the interface the speed at which like it sends a query to the debate database and takes Mm -hmm. like you know bright a query comes back in like under a second like with mls pen it's just like spinning and spinning for 10 seconds before it pops everything back and then in the boston area like the just the way the cities and counties are set up we don't really search by county up there so like you're like you have to type in all like these little city names um to really get your searches correct and like it just takes time then like because then i gotta input 10 different cities instead of just saying something like montgomery county mm-hmm. um, Got it. so my family started actually we owned a title company up there and it was really hard to even get things on record Everything is so spread out. And, yeah. Yeah. So you were born and bred to do title. I was just born. It's in my blood. Come on. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Have you always done title? I've always done title since I was in high school. I helped my aunt develop a filing system to electronically file all of her, you know, boxes of files that she had. So that's yeah. where I where I started. I started reading the loan documents and this was when the bubble was building in, you know, 2006-ish time yeah. frame. And so I get to see, I was like, that person didn't make any money, but they just bought a million and a half dollar house. I mean, what's going on here? <laughs> I saw some wax stuff. What state was that title company on? It was in Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Yep, yeah. outside of Boston. Yeah. Very cool. So crazy stuff happening, like no, no verifiable income. Yeah. We were talking about last time about the movie, the big short. Yeah. Yeah. So you've seen it. I've seen so it. So said every inch, you should be required to watch it if you're going to be in real estate. Agreed. If you're not going to, it's the book. It started out as a book, right? And then yeah. they made it into a movie. If, yeah. I made my parents watch it. My dad will ever, if we like don't understand something, he's like, here's Margot Robbie at a bathtub to explain. It's like, it's the only good way to. Well, I mean, I mean, it's very accurate because like in 2003, when I started flipping my first house, I was 23, 24 years old. I didn't have any money um, and it, I didn't have an experience. And here I am borrowing half a million dollars to do flips. Like, <laughs> Yeah. What year was that? 
2003. Ah. Uh, yeah. I always joke. I'm like, how much would you would you like to make? If you had this your dream job, what would your ideal salary be? We'll put that on the loan application we'll is how it was. Yeah. yeah, we'll just pencil that in yeah. for now. We can always change it. Yeah. <laughs> so one of your expertise is the reason we brought you on. It's one of the most complicated issues in title um, here and unique, mostly unique to the D.C. area, and that's TOPA. Um, it's a huge pain in the ass for agents. Uh, consumers generally don't know what it is until they're dealing with it. So um, tell us, what, what does TOPA stand for? So TOPA stands for Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act, and it was uh, enacted by D.C. to help curb uh, when gentrification was happening very quickly. A lot of people were being evicted and unjustly, you know, sent out of their homes, tenants who were renting for years and years. So what DC did was enact this law. And it's also a big pain for title companies as well, because we are ensuring ownership, right? So we care about any other outside interest, recorded or unrecorded, that people have in a property. So it gives the tenants the first right of refusal, essentially, to purchase real property in the District of Columbia. And there are dis different uh, categories of it based on the number of units in a building. But and it that's made it where a it really gets, I think, a little complicated. Like, right, one unit's different from two to four, which is different from five plus. So, like, instead of having one simple process to follow, we got to know three different processes. You're totally right. So and it's all different timelines, paperwork, everything's different based on number of units. And so let's run through like sort of a, let's do, let's talk about like a two to four unit property. I'm a seller, Sarah's a buyer. She gives me an offer, let's say a million dollars. Then what, what happens from there basically? So one important thing to understand before we go into the example, is that when DC enacted this law, it made your rights as a tenant a commodity. So now as a tenant, there's someone with something that they can buy and sell. So that's very important to understand in any base conversation about TOPA. So in your example, you're the seller. Yeah. So you now have to serve your tenants now that your property is under contract. Even now that you've thought about selling, your tenants now have what are called tenants rights and you have to serve them certain paperwork and the buyer needs to make sure that you do that correctly because we're going to ensure her new ownership when she purchases. And if any of the tenants can come forward and claim an interest in the property, you don't actually own it and their interest would leapfrog yours. So, okay. so yeah. this is triggered when an offer, when you're rat after the contract is ratified. You have tenants' rights if you have a T-shirt hanging in the closet mm -hmm. and it, if, you, if the seller has an, a conversation with a real estate agent, they need to serve the tenants TOPA. That's when it's triggered. Is That's when it's triggered. Okay, so even before it's live on the MLS or they have an offer in their hand, it's when they show there's probably a fancy legal, yeah, like exactly. some sort of interest in selling. And you can already see the first Ambiguity. issue with TOPA. It's <laughs> ambiguous. Yeah. So when do TOPA rights arise? When do I actually need to serve this paperwork? So that's all the beginning questions, right? So And as you mentioned, it's a commodity, right? So they can sell that commodity to a third person. They can sell it to Fred over there. Exactly. Um, and would tell us what what does it look like when the tenant sells the rights? Well, Fred's usually a developer, right? Yeah, Fred's usually a developer, but not always. Not always. Sometimes no. Fred is a extortionist or a blackmail artist. Uh, totally. Well, I've had uh, Hill interns get huge payouts, five-figure payouts on a sale of a single-family residence that they've lived in for six months because the owner decided to sell, right? So mm -hmm. their dad was a lawyer. He knew the law. And technically, they had rights that they could assign to another third-party purchaser if they wanted to, so... So someone came in, bought the rights, and then bought the house. Exactly. Okay. So how Even long though was... the house was under contract with someone else. Oh, geez. I know. 
that's stressful. How long does that take from start to finish once you serve uh, serve the paper? Once you give them notice, I don't even know what the right term is. Yeah, once you You're serve. You're not suing them, but no. it's still serving? Okay. It's still serving. You're serving you the topa <laughs> yeah. notices, okay, if you will. Okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we'll call it that to make it easy. But. So we have the interest in the property. I'm going to sell it. Got to start serving the topa paperwork to the tenants. They can either say, we have no interest in selling. Or they can say, we have an interest in matching any offers. Or they can sell it to the th- the third party, Fred, over there. Mm-hmm. Correct. Um, they could form an association themselves and turn it into condos and buy the building. So there's a few different options that can happen. But it, uh, generally, if we were to go contract to close, 45 days is a good, the longest and quickest close, I guess, that you would have to write the into quickest a contract. Close. The, the quickest. longest. Yeah, yeah, yeah the quickest. Yeah. Because yeah. if they put any sort of struggle, then it's going to longer. What do you do if it's like seven people living in a like boarding house situation? You better have a good title guy like me to sit in the yeah. lobby and sign all the documents with the tenants as they walk in oh from work. Gosh. And you just, yeah, you just wait and sit there and give them to them. Yeah. yeah. yeah and what people don't realize is when they're right, when we're getting these signatures from the tenants, it's got to be notarized. So we got to get a notary in front of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then people don't want to sign what they don't understand. Right. So that's exactly. where where I've encountered the most delays, they've no desire to buy the house, no desire to sell the third, sell the pro, sell the rights to a third pro, uh, party, but they don't want to sign away their topo rights either because they don't understand what they're signing. Exactly, and then they think they're going to be evicted, and you can understand. I mean, mm-hmm. these people have sometimes live there for years and years. Yeah. They just don't want to sign anything, so it's yeah. difficult. And and let's. We're touch, we touched on the blackmail here a little bit, but let's let's talk about the bl- the blackmail aspects of this, where third parties try to, or even just the tenants try to slow down the process to get the payouts. You mentioned you've seen Hilton interns get five figure payouts. Uh, what's the biggest payout you've seen on on these? Around I've heard crazy stories. Fifty five thousand. Fifty five thousand each wow. tenant, and there were four. So, in like a single family? In a single, it was single family before the law was changed. So we should note that the law was changed for single families a few years ago. Yeah. So they're now, it's a lot harder for this to happen, but this was a perfect circumstance and the house was, yeah, just ripe for a topo claim. So Who bought it? Like who bought the rent? In that case, a developer bought the rent. And so did they do like a condo conversion or something with it? No. Nope. It was just a really nice house single on the family. hill with a with a carriage house and it was just a really great opportunity that had been I think had been in their family for year decades. And Son of a gun. So the developer's paying the purchase price plus the whatever he's paying out for the topa. Exactly, because they can put that into their budget, right? A lot of the time if they get a good enough deal. And uh when these when people are starting to do this and sell the third party sell the rights to third parties, how long can the timeline get extended out? This is where I think most people fear of Topa comes in is you know, they hear horror stories of how long this can get dragged out. It can almost be indefinite. If you have tenants that continue to say, Oh, well, we're getting more information, right? They just keep kicking out that that timeline and it could get longer and longer. I am a fan of a what's called an assignment of topa rights. So if we can get the topa rights assigned either back to the seller or to the new contract buyer directly before closing right after the property goes under contract, that's the safest and quickest way that you could go to closing. We could I've done topa closings that have gone in 2 weeks. You know, yeah. with that model, but you know, they could kick it out for as long, you know, as long as they want. I think uh, a lot of agents in the district sort of have trained their brains to think about when they are dealing with Topa, how much should I offer the tenant to, uh, you know, right off the bat to get through, 
get through this process because I was doing a deal over in Georgetown and I was representing the buyer and uh, one of the units was occupied and the listing agent said to me, how much should we offer the uh, the tenant downstairs to get her topo rights? I was like, well, let's not offer them anything in the beginning. Let's, let's see if she wants anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we ended up negotiating was just um, extending her lease for one more year at her current um, uh, rent. Like, totally. No, no big deal. But he was ready to offer her 10 grand right off the bat. I'm like, no, never, never name a number. Never, never, yeah. never even, I don't even inform them that like, Hey, if they, I inform them of what the law requires, which is, do you, do you want to match the offer here to buy? Right? Like I'm not, I don't want to plant seeds in their mind that they can profit from the situation. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No. And the lowest I've seen is 500, right? Yeah. Just it just needs to be a nominal value, something of value, and extending a lease would be something of value, right? Yeah. So. In that case, that was the value, and yeah, uh, it was great because, and my buyer actually wanted them to stay there because, and he wanted so it, it served his purposes too because now he had his guaranteed rent coming in for another year to offset the mortgage. Exactly. Uh, so one other thing that was interesting to note about Topa is that you could be under contract with one buyer. And then if the tenants organize and assign their rights to a third party, there are third parties out there that are trying, just looking for these four unit buildings that are going under contract and then trying to contact the tenants to now leapfrog your buyer. So if I'm a buyer's agent and I'm representing my buyer going into a purchase of a property, I want to know that because I want to make sure that I'm trying to protect my buyer. So I think that's an important thing for buyer's agents to know in TOPA. It doesn't always fall on the listing agent. How do you find out about that? Like, how do you, as a buyer's agent, maybe going in, you don't know about this third party if they've contacted the tenants? Like, how is there a way to figure that out so you're not blindsided? It generally happens pretty quick. And they even go in, sometimes they get into the building and they hang things on the doors. They hang things by the mailbox. There's ways... There are a lot of ways. I've seen a lot of crazy things now. I just sit in a lawn chair in the front yard and be like, lemonade stand. Prior to the law being uh, changed when we had to deal with Topa much more in single family properties, there was actually a lawyer who had a um, truck with like a billboard that he pulled behind it, drive around the city. You know, it was like, I'll buy your Topa rights or whatever Uh, on it. He had a Mini Cooper and it said, got Topa, question mark on the side. And he would drive around looking for the single family houses. And it was... An icon, but also a nemesis. Yeah. (laughs) At least in the real estate community, yes. It must have worked. Oh, it worked. He made a good living. Yeah. I haven't seen that car in a while. Yeah, because after after the law changed where most single families are exempted, it shrunk the pool. So he wasn't able to make a a living anymore just doing Topa. Exactly. Now we have more savvy, you know, people who are trying to buy four unit buildings because that's a sweet spot, right? Those four unit kind of brick DC, you know, four windows in the front with the door and yeah. Yeah, and is and your chances increase, right? If you're if it's a duplex where one unit's owner occupied and the other's not, you're only dealing with one person. If you if you're dealing with four separate tenants, you have a better probability of one of them not wanting to play ball with the transaction and wanting to get paid, right? So that's where the probabilities are gonna favor a developer or a third party to try to buy Topo rights because it's more people. Exactly. Um so in Topa, like I'm, like we sort of touched on here, it changed a few years ago where most single families are exempted, but there are certain situations where Topa does apply to a single family home, right? Exactly. There are two certain circumstances. If the uh, tenant is elderly or disabled, 
DCC has a form that defines what this is, and you still have to serve the tenant what's called a Form 1, and that is where they have, I believe it's 20 or 25 days to come forward and say, yep, I'm disabled and uh, I want to exercise my TOPA rights, and there are certain things that you can give them, extending the lease, giving them more time, a little assistance to move out, all this stuff. Yeah, have you have you run into many... Because obviously not a lot of tenants are disabled, right? Or have you run into a lot of single-family topper issues since the law changed? No, not since the law changed. It's much more minimal now, but it used to be a much higher Yeah, I mean, every sale in D.C. used to be like pulling teeth. Yeah, exactly. Um, So how do they determine if someone is, it's like speculation if the person is disabled and then you use everyone, get the paper and you have to identify whether you're A or B? Or do you just as a landlord go, that person's disabled and serve them? They're like, I'm not disabled and I'm suing you for like fair housing issues or whatever. No, no, (laughs) it's it's all documented and then there are letters that are written and all that. It's a certain type of housing to begin with. A certain type of disability, I guess. Well, yeah. disabilities, age is another so requirement. So the landlord probably knew already. Sometimes they don't. Not all disabilities are visible. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so sometimes it's not. So that's when they have to send a letter. It is tricky. Again, ambiguous, right? Toba is ambiguous. That should be yeah. the title. Yeah, that's yeah. And one of the things I always think is interesting here about Topa, right, is so Topa was created because they wanted to protect the community, right? And they wanted equity in the community. They wanted tenants who are often, right, members of a protected class to benefit from the sale and not necessarily be excluded. But what what actually ended up happening in reality is uh, the equity issues are reversed because it's developers who are largely profiting from these situations while the landlord, who's been a member of this community for 30, 40, 50 years, has their one rental property. Now they're having their equity stolen from them by a developer tying up the sale of the process, right? So what was was the law created to create equity in the community and uh, protect people in gentrifying neighborhoods actually had the opposite effect largely, right? Those people have their equity stolen from them from people outside of the community, <laughs> Agreed. I've never even thought about how the commodity makes it that way. Yeah. But yeah, it's redistribution and redistribution. Well, <laughs> sending out like, money to Virginia and Maryland where the developers live because they don't live in in these communities. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a uh, it's it's been legalized extortion is what I always refer to it as. Um, and now the D.C. City Council they're they're trying to bring back to around single family homes, right? Um, we've had a good run here for about five years without it. We've been able to do business uh, with way less headaches. And now the city council's like, no, let's bring Topa back and let's hurt these communities. They, they're not thinking hurt these communities, but the reality is it will hurt these communities more if we bring it back on single family homes. Right. I think unintended consequences is yeah. is a huge thing when it comes to Topa. It's <laughs> Any housing, like policy, rent control, all those things, it just ends up discouraging the people who are actually providing housing. Yeah, nearly every government, you know, policy on housing always has unintended consequences that blow up in its face, right? Like the idea of creating housing projects to house people. Great idea, but then they became, right through the 70s and 80s and 90s, it became magnets for crime and poverty. Rent control, great idea that, you know, we're going to limit the raises on rent, but what does it do? It creates housing shortages and dries up the cost of housing on everyone else. Every time they create a new housing policy, unintended consequences happen and uh, ends up hurting the people that they're trying to, to help. So what happens when, say, a title company doesn't, they don't do it right? 
That's a great question, right? What kind of recourse do the tenants have? Possibly total forfeiture of title, which means that's a huge title claim for your buyer. And I imagine your buyer is not going to be very happy when they're having to file a title claim and go to court <laughs> with everyone who was involved, title company, agent, everyone. So, What's the statute of limitations on that? You know, that is a good question. And I'm not even sure, but- It probably my, varies too. It varies, fair, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, DC is a very tenant-friendly yeah. community, right? Or uh, city. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine that they don't, they're not going to play around when it comes to. Right, right. Like a tenant could show up years later and be like, this wasn't processed correctly. I wasn't given a fair shot. Yep. Let me t- take it back. <laughs> a well, grandson. I mean, right? we're, we're dealing with the t- title problem, not from Topa, but we're dealing with the title problem now that was created 25 years ago. Um, 1998. Yeah. I mean. Year after my birth. <laughs> <laughs> But the poor seller in that, can you imagine not owning half your property and not finding out until you go to sell it, you know, mm-hmm. years after you've already purchased years it? Later. 25 yes. years later. Yes. And, and, and to be fair, and you made a good point of this too, the previous seller, like us, the title company just showing up 25 years later and being like, sign this piece of paper. He's elderly. He's in a nursing home. He's like, what? Like, I don't <laughs> know you people. This looks like a scam. This was so long ago. Why do you want me to sign this? Yeah. yeah he's like, I don't remember what I had for breakfast, let alone the house they sold in Silver Spring in 1998. Well, luckily uh-huh. we were able to track them down. So this yes, is a good thing. Yes. Oh my gosh. So much stress last week, but <laughs> we're getting through it. A little, we're getting through it. It's yeah. not over yet. It's not over yet. And that's the thing with, with title problems, right? Everyone's always like, should I pay this thousand or $1,500, sometimes $2,000 for title insurance? And they're, they often think this is a waste of money and it, it, it may actually seem like that, but you may not need that policy you're buying today until 25 years later. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, and that's hard to convey to consumers. Extremely. Um, well, and in this instance, I think you guys tried to reach out to the original title company and say, like, listen, this was your mistake. Can you do something? Can you insure the new buyer or do something like that? And they were like, no, because it's been 25 years. <laughs> like, <laughs> they were like, file a claim. Yeah. I always joke, and I didn't even come out here to hawk title insurance, but if we're going to talk about it, yeah. I mean— it's a one-time fee you pay at closing that you hope you never have to use. But once you have to use that title insurance, you're very happy that you paid that one-time fee. It's, you know. Right. I've personally had to use title insurance once on one of my properties. Um, I bought a property, I think, in 2010. In 2012 or 13, I went to go refinance it. Um, and when I bought it, it had been a foreclosure. And, you know, we'd use whoever Fannie Mae's um, title, preferred title company was for it. And 2013, I go to refinance and they're like, um, you get this title problem. Um, this foreclosure was not done correctly. Um, and I'm like, well, what the fuck, what the fuck do I do? Right. <laughs> um, and so they had to, um, do a title claim, re foreclose on the home, redo, you know, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't take terribly long, but it took three or four months, right? Um, when you're trying to refinance, yeah, you're watching those rates daily. Um, and they had to go through all of the stuff to finally fix the defect. Um, you know, I, I don't know how many uh, man hours, uh, you know, it took for the lawyers to do it, but I imagine I probably would have spent fifteen or twenty grand out of pocket mm-hmm. um, for what was covered by the one thousand dollar title insurance policy that I had purchased three years prior. Yeah. It's a sunk cost, too. Once you pay it, you don't think about it until you have to, and hopefully you never have to think about it. Agreed. And once borrowers actually file their loan application, the the premiums are already in your quote anyway. Mm -hmm. So you're just essentially whittling down your settlement costs. It's not like you're you're adding a fee at the last minute that you have to come out of pocket for. So it's 
true. But if, if we're talking title insurance here, one of the things I always think is interesting and worth talking about really in depth on that is the difference between the basic policy and, and the enhanced policy. Yeah, we get that question. I get that question the most, I bet. Uh, the enhanced policy includes some additional survey benefits, and we have a checklist on our website of the two policies, and you can do a policy comparison and how that would impact you down the line. But uh, in, in D.C., the reason the enhance is important is because it in, it covers you for some – if the property increases in value. And, and that's what I think is the most important part of the enhance. The biggest one of the enhanced, yeah. right? Yeah. So if I buy the property for making up a number here, $500,000 today – and in DC, my values are going up fifty thousand dollars a year, which is significant. I don't want to just be protected for my five hundred thousand dollar purchase. I want to be protected mm-hmm. if the value of my house is six hundred, six fifty, seven, eight, nine. Um, right. And I think there are some limits on right. It's capped at some. There are some. It goes against inflation numbers and all that yeah. stuff. And there's calculations that insurance companies do, obviously. And- but in the case of this title issue we're having over here in Silver Spring, we're paying what five twenty five ish for that house, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that property was purchased in 1998, so it's probably $100,000 then maybe, right? So if we were using title insurance to fix the claim, I know everything we don't want them to insure that $100,000 property yeah. when it's worth $500,000 today. It's almost like protecting your profits, right? Yeah. You know, you yeah. want to protect that future equity. It's like you might go to the store and buy like a calculator and not get the two-year protection plan. But when you buy a TV or something you pay the extra 30 bucks because you want to protect that. Not that TVs appreciate, but... In the, the basic policy and enhanced policy, the price difference is pretty nominal, right? It really is nominal, and it's fixed rates depending on your jurisdiction. But at the mm-hmm. same time, yeah, it's nominal rates, I mean. Yeah. And come on, buyers. Like, your lenders are looking at your bank statements. They know what you spend your money on. They know you can pay for the title insurance. The one-time title some, insurance. Cancel your Hulu. No more <laughs> avocado toast. Right. Skip a few iced coffees and you'll be fine. You're dropping 400 bucks at brunch uh, twice a month and uh, you can't spend $1,000 on the title insurance. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. But, so t- tell us, what t- you must have some Tupa horror stories, right? Oh, I don't or know. I shook my like, hand. No, I'm so good. We we never deal with the problems because nothing I gets them. past Peter. <laughs> well, I hope so. Yeah, knock on wood. It's a brick wall. It's a brick wall. Yeah, uh, I think I already kind of showed my hand. The biggest one, the biggest payout was is a really interesting Topa story. Um, another one is that I did have a developer come and leapfrog a contract buyer. So it was a family that was under contract, and a savvy developer on the hill leapfrogged our contract buyer. Luckily, they still were going to close with me, but at the same time, it was. Sad to see one agent lose out with their couple who was going to purchase this property, first time home buyer. Yeah, family home for a developer to come in and kind of swoop in and buy the rights. And then how far along were they like in the process? Very early. It was probably three weeks in. Okay, well, that's good at least. But yeah, that sucks. My my pro tip for Topa is do the assignment. Like, yeah, so what does that entail? Yeah, so once you get under contract, the day after you get under contract, you can start serving the notices. The biggest mistake I see is improper service of the notices. Everyone always thinks that they can do it better. Don't FedEx the forms. The forms lay out exactly how you have to mail them. They need to be certified mail. It's very specifically written out. And I always have agents engage me early in the process so that I can help them, like coach them through the mailing because we don't want you to UPS them or anything. So you you mail the the TOPA documents. You That now the rights are with the tenant, they've been served, and now you can go in and do an assignment form. And every title company should have their own assignment, which are generally close in in form. But you pay the tenant a certain fee uh, 
500 is the lowest I've seen up to a few thousand and you buy the rights and you now assign the rights. If I'm, I always say sometimes to do it to the buyer, sometimes you want to do it to the seller. It just depends on how the parties want to negotiate that, but you assign the rights back with one form and you can do that two days after you mail the Toba documents. So the timelines are very tight here okay, and very who's, close. Let's back up. Who's sending these documents? Who's buying the rights? Technically, it's the uh, listing agent's responsibility to mail the documents. Okay. Is the listing agent but, paying to buy these rights too? But in real reality, it's the listing agent's responsibility, right? But most of the time, it's actually the title person doing it. It's most of the time. Yeah. yeah. If you have a good title person, it's them not just yeah. pushing the paper back at you being like, mail them. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So I'm helping the agent mail the documents. Mm -hmm. And then it depends on who pays for it, where the rights are assigned. If a lot of times the seller pays for it and can have the rights assigned to their contract buyer because they don't care. They know that the buyer is going to go to closing and sometimes they have them assigned back to the seller. The seller so okay. in case the contract falls out, now the seller still has the rights. Okay. So a good listing agent should be preparing. So some sellers I'm sure don't know about any of this. So listing agent needs to come prepared saying, because like if, Honestly, the seller should probably be paying for the rights to get them back because it gets exactly. messy when imagine the listing agent pays for it and then they have a big blow up, listing agreement expires. That's even more complicated. So you need to be prepping your seller that this is an expense ahead of time, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so this leads into some important points. So as we know, right, buyers get to choose their title company. But when it comes to TOPA, we need to start the process before we actually go to sell the property. So the listing agent and the seller should already be working with the title company. So if you're a buyer and you're like, man, I want to use ABC title, no, you really should be using the title company the seller started the process with already. And not all title companies are created equal when it comes to TOPA. A lot of them are clueless. It, like, I know some awesome, awesome title attorneys that have never done um, a TOPA sale. Agreed. No. I mean, title forward isn't located here, for example. They're and they don't when they get a topa deal where's your yeah. you have to really rely on your rep to or whoever your agency rep is to walk you through the entire process but you're right work with whoever the seller's been working with to start this uh mm -hmm. to start the topa process and half the time you're right the seller doesn't know that this is even something that needs to be done unless they're a savvy landlord yeah the, so. the first thing i'm doing when i'm making an offer on um and multifamily property is I ask the listing agent, have you started the TOPA process yet? And when I hear them say no, I'm like, this is going to be a nightmare transaction because mm -hmm. it means the listing agent doesn't know what they're doing. Um, we got to start from scratch. Um, and I always think it's better that we're starting, right? I want a property under contract within a week of when it comes on the market. Once it's on there for much, much longer, the tenants become aware that the property's for sale. And the more they're aware, the more they start researching, and the more likely they are to do something that's going to throw a wrench in. So, right? Mm -hmm. They talk to their cousin who yeah. thinks that they know about TOPA, right? And so, so, I yeah. like a very fast process here, like get them to try to sign those TOPA rights away as quickly as they can and proceed to the sale. I don't want to, when I'm making an offer on a property on the market 30 days, and they haven't started TOPA, there's going to there's gonna be problems. That's another Agreed. thing for people. We have a lot of people who are like, do you have off-market stuff? Like, can I, let's, you know, direct a seller. I just want to approach them. And it's like, okay, but they probably haven't thought about this at all. So do you as a buyer know how to arbitrate this and walk the seller through the process? Because if you don't, 
it's going to be a huge disaster. It's always the same buyers who don't want to use an agent or, you know, want to get a deal or do seller financing too. Imagine trying to structure a seller financing deal and doing topo for the seller (laughs) on your first deal. Yeah. Not going to happen. Yeah. Never again. Too many moving parts. Too many moving parts. Yeah. Yeah. People don't understand the complexities of multifamily housing in DC. You know, in the suburbs, it's not as hard. Um, but in DC, it is a very complicated, uh, little niche and Topa is just one of the things that makes it complicated. It's not even the, the only thing there's, you know, 15 other things that make it a complicated, uh, little niche. So Russell, you bring up a really good point. The longer a property sits on the market, that's a multifamily. Not only did the tenants have longer to get this realization that they might have a windfall lottery ticket, you give all these developers and other agents out there time to contact the tenants. Mm-hmm. The longer it's under contract or just sitting on the market, the longer you're right, the worse the deal so is going to go. the best thing you can do is, a minute, I think it's called substantiative contact or whatever you have with an agent. Do it then, and then hopefully you get signatures before you even go to market. Agreed. And yeah. there's two ways you can do Topa, too. You can do it with a third-party contract and without. So you can start the clock before you even get the property under contract. So right. that changes the timeline, and obviously I'd walk an agent through that. Yeah, but, I yeah. saw an interesting ethics case once where um, a real estate agent was buying the Topa rights, and the seller tried to file an ethics case against them. And you know it got thrown out because— what they're doing is right, even though it's extortion, it's legal. Who's which agent, the seller's agent or the buyer's it agent? It was an agent that was not involved buying it for himself or herself, or no, just tr- get, trying to tie up the sale through through purchasing topa rights, okay, um, to get paid. Um, so they weren't they didn't want to buy it or anything, they no, just they just wanted to get paid. Little side hustle, yeah. And um, the ethics case got thrown out because as much <laughs> as much as people had a distaste for this, yeah. it was legal. It's dickish, yeah. right. but it's not illegal. It's not illegal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've seen deals, yeah, where people will hold up the 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 settlement, and they'll actually the tenants will get you know a couple thousand dollars, and someone who assigned the rights will actually walk away with twenty, thirty thousand, yeah. and just pay the tenant a nominal fee. And which in some neighborhoods in DC probably work a lot better than in other neighborhoods of DC, which is extortion in its own yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. I was uh, on the buy side of this four unit in Logan Circle once and this property, we were the fourth people to place it on the contract. Um, I think it was like originally listed at 1.8 million and they kept having trouble with the tenants with Topa. Um, and we kept making an offer every time it came back on the market because we had a number we wanted it for. Um, so finally we're the fourth people to put it on the contract and I go to talk to the tenants and sort of talk to the one that's taken the lead with all of them. And he's like, we want 25 grand each to stay in the property. To stay. To stay. And I'm thinking, he thinks we want them to stay and he's trying to threaten us to leave. Why did the deal keep falling apart with everyone else? Mm -hmm. And so- I normally am really nice with them, but like in this, I'm like, oh, I'm going to act like a jerk here because I want him. He's threatening to leave. We we want the place vacant. Yeah, it's um, jack up the rents. So, so he, they end up leaving like within 30 days, all the tenants, because they think they're sticking it to us. Um, and we're like, great. So we buy, uh, go in, renovate all four units. And it was great. But like, I, I always love love that conversation with that one t- tenant. I want twenty five grand to stay. So where oh, was the God. breakdown of communication? I, I can't imagine what went wrong with the first three contracts, other than they didn't communicate with with the tenants. Is what I'm guessing. Are you, you're allowed yeah. to 
communicate with them as the buyer's agent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you told the seller's agent and you're like, I'm just going to talk to him, see what happens. Well, I told the seller's agent like, hey, I've got, you know, I've got a lot of Topher experience. I'm really good with dealing with these difficult tenants. Um, and, you know, let me just uh, go talk to them and, you know, see what we can do to move past the issues. And once I found out that the issues were imaginary, um, I... Seems to be a lot of situations. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we we proceeded to get the property closed without too much effort because the um, they didn't want to enact their... They didn't want to enact the ability to purchase. They didn't want to sell it. They wanted money to stay in the property and thought they were sticking it to the buyer by not staying in the property. Oh. He just he got the economic incentive in it in the situation completely backwards. Um, Interesting. <laughs> There's oh. not a lot of education out there for them. Regard. I mean, the seller's agent didn't do a good job of explaining. Yeah, what was I mean, going this on. this listing agent just she did not have um, any experience in the multifamily sector. She'd yeah. usually sold single family homes in Virginia. Yeah. Um, very very nice agent, but it was not her niche. So she we didn't know how to foster. You know, when you're when you're accepting an offer, right? When they accepted that first offer, and it's written for a thirty day close, like you should not be writing contracts for multifamily with thirty day closes in DC. No, um, and even if it is for the appropriate amount of time, you want to be com having the conversations like, are you going to stick with this purchase if there's toper problems that arise? Because right, if they're not going to stick with it, I shouldn't be placing it on a contract with that person. Mm -hmm. Agreed. You need to have a strong stomach too. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it's not always just cut and dry, you know, contract close normal cir circumstances. Title work in general, it's a black box in a lot of ways, especially for mm -hmm. the consumer. Yep. Like, what am I paying for? And I feel like my first, like last year, I was like, I don't really know. But now <laughs> once you have a few deals about to explode, you suddenly become very knowledgeable about title when you like actually ask the people right. to do it. Cause I mean, the thing is like, right, 98% of title experiences are just normal. We, we do the title exam. Oh, it's all clear. Great. But it's those 2% or 3% that are such nightmares. And when they go nightmare, they are... Worst nightmare. Yeah. It's not even like a little bad. It's always a lot bad. It's always like sins of the father, right? It's like someone did something. Uh, yeah, like, someone missed something. And it's yeah. humans at the end of the day, right? And it's like human error. So why? Yeah. Oh, humans. It's computers. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Trying to explain to a seller that someone didn't sign a document 25 years ago. And that's screwing you up today. Like, yeah. And there's a timeline. The buyer's got to move. Like, it's just. Well, now we're up against rate lock, like rate lock extensions and yes. the way rates are. I mean, you have a buyer under contract on a place that has a title issue. They lose their rate. I have one that's under contract for a year. What were rates at a year ago? Is They're a seller, lot higher. Is the seller locking it or they just like gave up on it? Yeah. They gave I mean, up on rate it. lock for a year would be like a. I don't even know if they could keep it. You can't. You can't. They They've really done three different banks now yeah. to keep it you know, their pre-approval up. And they went from, I think, a three and a half to now they're at six something and wow. more money out of pocket. They're still under contract on the house. They, must really they are hanging it. in there. Yep. That's what they want. School system. And what's the holdup on that one? It's an estate deal. Uh, and one of the more messy estates that I've ever seen. Yeah. How? What, what's messy about it? Just the way it was done? Yeah, the way it was done, we had to go back and have a, you know, a, a deed nullified by D.C. court in between because of an estate issue and yeah. opening up a foreign estate. If you because if you, a lot of people don't know that if you pass away in one jurisdiction and own property in another, you have to open an estate in each of those you know, each of those jurisdictions. So, oh, it's just the most complicated thing ever. Oh, but I gosh. think I got the whole thing unwound for the clients and we're trying to get to closing and 
you know. So I had this issue. The estate thing made me think of this. We were buying an estate property and we're at the final walkthrough. It's like two or three years ago in Silver Spring. While I'm at the final walkthrough, the title attorney calls me and she's like, we just got served with a lawsuit to stop the sale of the house. She's like, I've been named. Both agents are named. Um, Who did it? So it was the, this woman was handling the estate for her dead mother. And her brother sued everyone to stop the sale of the house. Um, right. And this has been, it's been through probate. Um, it's been on the market, right? This is, but, and it's the she day like before the closing. And, uh, yeah. And I'm just like, like you got to be kidding me. Um, so it ended up closing, but not like maybe 30 days later. Okay. Um, family dynamics. Yep. She had to give her brother more of the sale than she was getting to get it to go through. I'm sorry, but, um, mom never told you she yeah. loved you. Had that lawsuit come one day after closing instead of one day before, a lot more trouble, right? A lot yeah. more trouble. Yeah. Your buyer, if you were representing the buyer, wouldn't have been very happy, right? Yeah. You know, they all of a sudden are getting, yeah. Oh, they served. probably weren't happy regardless, but. Yeah. No one ever likes to see that anyway, but. Yeah. You know. And that's why as a buyer, it's like, like I said, black box thing. You don't know what's going on. I feel like you get under contract, your agent kind of like disappears a little bit besides from inspection yeah. and stuff. And you're like, oh my, what do, what do realtors even do? Meanwhile, me and Peter on the phone screaming like, ah, we were about <laughs> to last gonna fall apart. We were going to drive to North Carolina <laughs> to get this old man to like break into his nursing home and be like, bingo's over. Time to sign. <laughs> Got to sign. <laughs> yeah. And you always feel like a jerk. Every time you update your, your buyer, it's not always like it might be neutral news but it's not like great news so. yeah luckily your buyers very understanding they're very so they're great. great they're really great <laughs> yeah, shout out really to great. them yeah. so we'll get them into the house but there was a week there i was like oh my gosh you Fam- know. family complicates real estate right even yeah. back to topa mm-hmm. grandkids a crazy topa story grandkids were the worst ones i live with my grandma my grandma wants to sell her house or the you know the kids want to sell the house for their mom and you have a grandson living in the house well he's got topa rights no lease no nothing no job. No, no job. Yeah, no, a lot of times no job. But yeah, no, he had topa rights. He could hold up the sale for his grandma. And so I've seen it happen. So Jimmy is extorting grandma. Grandma, and he's getting his slice of the pie, right? And oh, my God. That was another. Yeah, see, all these things Jeez, spark, spark my past uh, traumas here. Oh, my God. That, that's going to be one of the worst ones I've heard of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Grandma's selling the house and grandson kind of stays there sometimes. He's also got a girlfriend. So now we need to track her down and have her sign oh the rights because gosh. she's got some stuff in the house. My family would go to like guerrilla warfare tactics. We would be like unplugging power boxes, like oh, yeah. graffitiing. I'm Italian, nasty. so yeah, my oh. family, yeah, it's be over. The noise complaints would be off <laughs> yeah. the charts. Yeah. That's crazy. There isn't a wooden spoon big enough, I don't think. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so Peter, tell us, uh, tell everyone where they can reach you if they want to, if they want to use you for title, if they want to learn more about you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so you can find me on Instagram at at titlepartnerpete. I also have a website, titlepartnerpete.com. On uh, my email, I'm with Titan Title in Washington D.C., Mar- Maryland, and Virginia. Uh, Peter at titantitlemetro.com is the best email for me. And get on Peter's email distribution list every week. He sends out a really useful email um, where. You're, there's classes he's teaching and just Topa. different resources Topa resources for, for agents. agents. Yeah. Yep. Um, there's always a good snippet in that weekly email. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. I always love to spot like broker tour on that email too because I really want to get people back out. It's tomorrow, the well, ours coming soon tour we have uh, yeah. for agents. I need to go to one. Yeah, I've yeah. never been to one. But even just going out and seeing property that's just yeah. listed and also listing agents, make sure you put your property on broker tour. It's the best marketing that you can have weekly for your property. Just keep it on the list. 
It doesn't well, have to be open. That's just an Arla thing. That's right? just that, no, yeah. no, no. That's an MLS thing. Oh, is it? A lot of people don't. Yeah, yeah you I can list your property as a as a coming, uh, not coming soon, but uh, oh, is that why I get emails open. from like other brokerages about? Is that what that is? Sometimes, yeah. But every okay. Tuesday from like eleven to two, generally, uh, agents in this area will hold their brokers open so that the property's open for brokers to go see across brokerages, not just within. Yeah, yeah. very cool. Yeah, so I'm yeah. trying to spotlight this. So, anyways, we'll see you guys next week, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the DC Real Estate Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to contact the hosts, reach out to them at info at dcrealestatepodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you access your podcasts.